All right. If I can go ahead and ask everyone to make their way back to their seat. Um, Brad Bushnell, thanks for leading worship today. I don't think he's in here, but thank you anyway. And then music folks, thank you for doing all that and tech people. I could go on and on. Everybody, there we have a lot of people here at Seven Hills Fellowship that volunteer to make all this happen, and so thanks to each of you. Um, we're going to jump in in a moment to this story of the Tower of Babel. Before we do that, uh, let me just take a moment and uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you very much for this day. I thank you for each of the people that are in here this morning. I thank you that your word makes it clear that um, nobody's in here this morning by accident. Uh, instead, Father, they are here because you have drawn them into this place. And so, Father, I ask that uh, as they um, sit and stand and talk and listen and sing and pray, uh, that, that that wouldn't be futile, but rather that um, somewhere in the midst of all of that, that they would encounter you, the living God. And so, Father, I pray that um, regardless of what they do with that interaction with you, I pray that you would uh, encounter them, that they would encounter you. And and I do pray, Father, that that would change um, our lives and change our hearts and change the way that we relate to you and the way we relate to one another. So, Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Brad did a great job this morning of um, giving us some illustrations that were taken from this, uh, the eternal city, the city of Rome. And uh, we actually did chat earlier in the week about the content of the sermon, and he chose his his uh, illustrations totally apart from my opening illustration. Oddly, my opening illustration this morning was actually on Rome as well. Interesting. Not Rome, Georgia, Rome, Italy. And uh, so, you know, when you go to Rome, for those of you who um, have not been, there's the Vatican, there's all this amazing history, there's the Colosseum, there's a place called the Roman Forum, right? There's just all this amazing, amazing history and architecture that's there. Well, there's this one area called the Palatine Hill, and the Palatine Hill actually overlooks the Forum. The Forum was sort of the city center, the civic center for Rome, um, you know, 2,500 years ago. And so about in 500 BC, these wealthy people started building their homes up on the hillside overlooking um, the Forum. Well, around, you know, probably around 20 BC, uh, emperors started taking that area of the hillside and building these huge palaces up on the hillside. And what was interesting is that each of the emperors, so it was Augustus, then Tiberius, then Domitian, then Nero, each of these guys built a palace that was bigger and better and more impressive than the guy that came before him. Because part of what each of those emperors was trying to do was trying to say, hey, you know, look at me, look how great I am. Remember me, I'm going to create a perception of myself in the minds of all of these Roman people so that people never forget me. Well, fast forward 2,000 years, and the Pierce family is on sabbatical, and we're in Rome, and we're walking along the Palatine Hill, and we're looking at all these ruins, and here we've got a picture again of these ruins that are on the hillside, and I've got the guidebook, and you know, I look at all these amazing sort of, this, this sort of rubble, the ruins of all these palaces, and I'm like, I don't know whose palace is which. I don't remember this guy, you know, Nero very much. He fiddled while Rome built, you know, burned or something, I don't know, and and the truth is, you know, after walking by it, everybody's tired, everybody's hungry, you're kind of worn out, and honestly, you don't really care whose palace it is anymore on day three, because you really just want to go find some gelato, you know what I mean? Like, where's the best pizza? You know, Caesar Augustus, who cares? I don't know. I don't care. Anyway. And so what's interesting is in Genesis chapter 11, we've got this other story of this group of people 
they want to build this city, and in the middle of the city, they want to build a tower. And what they're wanting to do is they're wanting to create a name for themselves so that people will remember them forever and remember how great they are. And again, Brad, you know, hearkened to this as he opened up the service for today. And, uh, and again, the problem is, is that this is a city which we don't even know really where it is anymore because it's buried beneath, uh, you know, who knows how many feet of rubble. And we don't know really who those people were anymore except for what we read about them in Genesis chapter 11. And so we're going to start reading there in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, just to create a little bit of context, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have these creation accounts. And, uh, and again, part of the point of these creation accounts is to give us an idea that God's the prime mover. And then we have the story of the fall, and not only the fall, but then the punishment or the, the outfall or the outgrowth from that fall where we rebelled against God. And then in Genesis chapter 4, we've got the story of Cain and Abel. And then in Genesis 5 through 10, what happens is the world has become evil. Everybody's sort of living in, in horrible ways. They're not really living in, in their lives in reference to God. And so then there's the story of Noah and the story of the flood. Well, Genesis chapter 11 is basically the sort of the, the do-over, right, where all of a sudden Noah's family is going to be the representatives of God in the world, and they're going to go out, and they're going to be fruitful, and they're going to multiply, and they're going to fill the earth, and they're going to have dominion over it. Unfortunately, things, as you probably know, don't always go as smoothly as planned. Let's start in verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. Now, Shinar was in Mesopotamia, which was to the east of Canaan. And they settled there. They put down roots. Verse 3, they said to each other, "'Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly.'" And so in Israel, there's tons of stone. It's abundant. And so most of the buildings are made out of all this, you know, uh, quarried stone. In lower Mesopotamia, however, there's not much stone. And so brick was the primary building material. In fact, we have this ancient Babylonian literature, these epics, where the building uh, and the baking of bricks was sort of lauded and recorded and celebrated, you know, like the iPhone. Like these are, you know, this is great. We are doing this wonderful thing. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so the building, this building they were making would have been a ziggurat. So um, Brad put up a picture of what a ziggurat looked like. It's this staircase-like structure. And at the top of it would have been a shrine, which would have been painted blue, actually, to blend in with the sky. And it was really intended to be a staircase between heaven and on earth. In fact, we know from, again, some of this ancient Babylonian literature that one of the ziggurats that existed in this day and age was called the house of the link between heaven and earth. And then at the base of this tower, there would have been a temple. And then from the base of the tower and the temple, there would have spread out a city. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. You know, they really thought they were building this great and impressive and amazing thing, and it would reach all the way up to the heavens. But in irony here, God has to come down out of heaven in order to see this thing that's being built by the children of man. Verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they're one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And so you read that, and it's idiomatic language ultimately, and uh, a very prominent uh, Old Testament scholar has sort of put it into our language where he said, one language and one people, if we don't stop them, what will they do next? 
So it's not that they really could do anything they set their minds to. In other words, what he was saying was, what will they do next? Verse 7, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And that phrase there, let us, is mostly God, most likely God speaking to the angels. And it said, interestingly, in contrast to the two prior verses where the people said, let us build a city for ourselves. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And so in irony, this Babel um, in ultimately in Babylonian meant gate of God. That name meant gate of God in Babylonian. But interestingly, in Hebrew, it meant to confuse. And so in irony, God came down and said, we're going to confuse them in order to spread out over the face of the earth. Now, Brad already kind of mentioned it, but one of the main things we're going to talk about this morning is pride, but we're going we're gonna to delve into a couple other things as well before we get there. So one of the first things we see in this passage is really the sin of disobedience, and it's just a very simple sin of disobedience, verses 1 and 2. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, why was building this tower wrong? Why was building this city wrong? You need to know the context of the story. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, go out, fill the earth and subdue it, bring order to chaos. And then again, after the flood in Genesis 9-1, God, God says to Noah, fill the earth and subdue it. Again, go out into this chaotic world and bring order to this chaos. However, when Noah's family reached Shinar, they settled there instead of continuing to fill the earth, right? They disobeyed God. They wanted to determine what was best for themselves. This wanting to determine what is best for ourselves in defiance of God, is absolutely and positively the direct or a direct result of the fall, right? We want to determine what is best for ourselves. We don't want to submit ourselves to God. Why is obedience to an authority so important? Parents could easily answer that question, right, this morning. Usually a command exists either to lead us to a preferred destination, right, somewhere that's good, or it's really given in order to protect us from something that will hurt us. In other words, uh, the reason there's a command is that we want to lead people to a preferred destination or a preferred future, and we want to protect them from being harmed, from being hurt, right? Obedience is actually a really, really important thing, especially when it's obedience to God. I read an article recently about the sinking of the ship, the Lusitania, and uh, what happened was in 1915, uh, the Lusitania, which was a British ocean liner, was struck by a torpedo from a German submarine. The ship sank literally in a matter of minutes, killing 1,198 of the 1,950 passengers on board, right? And what's interesting is you read the story of the sinking of the, the Lusitania, uh, there's really this interesting picture of all of these people that died because they either didn't put on their life preservers or they didn't read and then follow the instructions that were on their life preservers, and so they died. In, there's a book called The Epic Tragedy by Diana Preston, and here's what she had to say. Uh, she was actually taking um, some quotes from a man named Charles Laureate who was actually on the Lusitania when it sunk. Here's what she says. 
As the ship was sinking, and as Loriat, this first-person observer, looked around to see who needed life jackets, he noticed that among the crowds now pouring on deck, nearly everyone who passed by him was wearing a li- that was wearing a life jacket had it on incorrectly. In their panic, or in his panic, one man had thrust one arm through the armhole and his head through the other. Others rushed past, wearing them upside down. No one had read the little signs around the ship telling people how to put them on. Loriot tried to help, but some thought he was trying to take their life jackets from them, and instead they fled in terror. They ran away because they didn't trust that he was actually trying to help them. Preston continues, dead and drowning people were dotting the sea like seagulls. Many bodies were floating upside down because people had put their life jackets on wrong way up so that their heads were pushed under their water. In other words, they didn't obey, and it ultimately cost them their lives, right? So obedience and disobedience are really life and death issues. That's really, the book of Proverbs makes that very, very clear. But back to the story of Babel. Are there similar ways in which we are disobedient to God? Ways in which we settle and put down roots instead of filling the earth and subduing it? The answer is in a thousand ways, right? Most clearly in Acts chapter 2, what you see is that the apostles, the disciples, they were supposed to go out into the world and take the good news to Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth, and yet there's a point where they're just hanging out, and so at some point God does send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit pushes them out into the world, but there's a question there about whether or not they would have gone had the Holy Spirit not, not propelled them. The vision statement for Seven Hills Fellowship is to see Rome and all of its communities flourish. This vision is really taken from the Lord's Prayer where we're told to pray, Thy kingdom come. A vision pushes us out of our myopia and into a greater vision for our lives, right? It pushes us out of settling into filling the earth and subduing. Without a vision for the kingdom of God, our vision becomes a vision for our own kingdom or kingdoms. It becomes about our house, it becomes about our yard, it becomes about our car or our hobbies or our family or our education or our job. Those are all good things. None of those things, in fact, are bad in and of themselves. It's when we make them our ultimate good and the source of our ultimate happiness, when we settle in those things, that they become the sins, a sin of idolatry. And the idolatry of those things, it'll never fulfill us. Those things will always leave us empty. And worse yet, like the story of the Lusitania, they threaten to destroy us when we do not obey. So the first sin is just a sin of disobedience. Luther, Martin Luther, that is, um, taught us to ask the question, what's the sin that lies beneath the sin? Right? Lying might be the, the sin that you see on the surface, but what's beneath that lying? Right? Or disobedience, not obeying God or not obeying your parents, might be the overt sin, but what's the sin beneath the sin? And really, there are a couple in this passage um, of Scripture. We're going to talk about pride in a minute, but before we get there, we're going to talk about fear. So let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why did people in the ancient Near East build cities? People would build cities for protection, for safety, to attempt to guarantee a preferred future versus the chaos of an unknown future. During the day, you'd farm or you'd shepherd out there, but at night, you'd enter into the city gates and you'd sleep in relative safety. It makes sense, really, if you think about it. God commands you to move out into the unknown, right? That's part of, part of walking with God, is that God pushes you out into chaos 
that you might bring order into chaos, that you might bring the kingdom to bear upon the world. But that unknown is unsafe. It's chaotic, right? I mean, think about all the places that God pushes us that are unsafe and they're chaotic, that are scary. Marriage, you know, I hate to tell you this, it's kind of scary. Parenting, I love being a parent, but it's scary and it's a little chaotic. College, going away from home to college can be a scary thing. Career, you know, entering into a career and investing your life in this career, that can be scary, it can be chaotic. You know, choosing to do campus outreach instead of being a mortgage broker, that can be scary, right? You know, choosing to go into young life or to do a PhD instead of choosing to sell insurance, that can be scary and chaotic. God's constantly pushing us out into a world of unknown that requires overcoming our fear, our fear that God won't take care of us, our fear that it's not going to work out, a fear that God can't be trusted. Listen to what Larry Crabb, he's a Christian counselor, has to say about our fundamental fear. He says this, that's the terror we all feel. He's basically saying this is kind of at the root and the core of our sins. Is God really good, right? That's, that's right down there. Whether you know it or not, the root of your disobedience, the root of determining for yourself what you think is best instead of listening to God, really down there at the bottom of that root is the question, is God really good? Does he care enough to protect us against the harmful influences of life and bring us through as wonderfully satisfied, happily passionate people? When we knock on the door of the universe, is anyone home, anyone, that is, who is stronger than every enemy and good enough to be entirely entrusted with our souls? Nothing feeds determination like terror, like fear. Our determination to look after ourselves, right, to build that city to settle down is a deeply felt passion that seems entirely reasonable, not on theological grounds, but because it seems to be our only chance for survival. At the root sinfulness behind that determination is the ongoing suspicion that God is not good enough to fully trust Him with our lives. Why do we build cities? Why do we settle down? Why do we hide inside of our career or inside of our family? Why do we refuse to go out into the chaos of the unknown? Because at the end of the day, we don't really know that God loves us, that He's for us, and that He cares for us. And we say, I'm taking care of myself, right? In what ways do we refuse to trust God's vision for our lives because we're afraid that He can't be trusted? I'll just let you think about how that might play out in your life. But that's definitely one of the sins beneath this sin of disobedience. The next sin that we see that's beneath the sin of disobedience is really the most obvious one. It's the sin of pride. We'll go back to verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. The very first sin that we know of was the sin of pride. And interestingly enough, I'm not talking about the sin of Adam and Eve. I'm actually talking about the sin of Satan, the original sin that's recorded in Isaiah chapter 14. The words are on the screen. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of morning? How are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation In the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most 
high, right? So Lucifer, who became Satan, his original sin was a desire to be equal or above God, right? That should sound very familiar to us if you're aware of how you actually operate. What about Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, this is where Satan, after he has fallen, comes to them and listen to how he tempts them. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that really what God said? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God can't be trusted. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, right? So the sin of pride, the sin of desiring to be like God, the sin of desiring to have our authority on par with God's authority began with Satan, and then it made its way into the hearts of Adam and to Eve and has infected the heart of every single human being since then. We do not want to pray, thy kingdom come. We want to pray, my kingdom come. In our sinful state, we absolutely positively want to settle down, circle the wagons, and build a name for ourselves. But the problem is it just will not work, and it won't work for any number of different reasons. One of the main reasons it won't work is because we die and we're forgotten, right? I hate to tell you this, and it's, this is very sobering, but the truth is after three or four generations, most people won't remember my name, right? You know, I've tried to love my family well and sacrifice, live a life of sacrifice for other people. And, you know, after three or four generations, nobody's going to remember me, right? My kingdom will not last. There's a great poem called Ozymandias by Shelley. And I'll read this really quickly. We've got a cool little picture up on the screen. But listen to the words of, of this poem by Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair, nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away, right? The, essentially, what, what Shelley was trying to get at here is we, we build our kingdoms, and our kingdoms turn into rubble. The Tower of Babel, the Palatine Hill, Ozymandias, right? We can't honor ourselves and be remembered. We have to let God do that. It won't work because we die and we're forgotten. It won't work, right? Building our own Kingdoms and settling won't work because we are sinful human beings, right? It's why every movement of man, whether it's democracy or any of the movements that are happening, uh, the Arab Spring, they, they never last. They always fall into disarray because our sin, apart from God's work in us, always leads to chaos. Wordsworth, who was actually writing during the French Re- Revolution, was absolutely smitten by the French Revolution. He was really enamored by it, as were so many Americans in that day and age as they looked at the revolution in France. What's interesting is that among many other English poets and deep thinkers of those early 18th century days, they greeted the French Revolution with delight and great hope. Here's what Wordsworth said. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, 
but to be young was very heaven. In other words, the revolution was this motivating, beautiful thing. But then came the terror, right? The guillotine, the mass murderer. And then it was followed by Napoleon's empire. And Wordsworth changed his tone and wrote later the following words. He says, this melancholy waste of hopes overthrown, the story of the world, the story of the world. Right? What he's saying is the story of the world is that man tries to build this kingdom, to settle down, to do this great thing, and then it ends up in chaos because we're sinful and we're broken. The Roman Empire, the British Empire, the American Empire, it won't last because we're sinful. And then finally, building our own kingdoms and pride won't work because God loves us too much to let it work. There are many times in my life when I you know, become imbalanced, my fidelity, my faithfulness is imbalanced. I have several primary idols, good things that I've made ultimate things. And I don't realize it usually, but my attention and my heart are committed to those idols progressively, and I walk, kind of wander away from God. And I become more faithful to them than I do to God. And in His love for me, God will often allow some disruption in those areas. And I honestly believe that He allows that fragmentation, those fractures, in order to draw me back to Himself. He loves me too much to let me build my kingdom around my family or around Krista or around the church, right? He won't let me build my name around those things. He loves me too much. And so, to get my attention and to remind me that my ultimate joy is to be found in Him, He brings something in that wakes me up and that fractures those things in order that I go, oh yeah, I've got to trust in you. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. It really wouldn't be a Seven Hill Sermon without a C.S. Lewis quote. He says this, God made us invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on Himself, right? He is to be our primary good, our primary hope, our primary safety, our primary security. He Himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way, that's pride, without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from Himself because it is not there, right? In other words, He has to be first. And when God is first, then everything is in good order, and the chaos of our lives and the chaos of our world is overcome. Let me call call time out here really quickly and, uh, and go ahead and say, what's the takeaway, right? What do we leave the story of, of uh, the Tower of Babel with? And it would be really easy to say there are three main takeaways. One, obey God and things will go good for you, right? That would be, that'd be one takeaway. Number two, living out of fear is a failure to believe God and leads to chaos and disorder. Number three, living out of pride is also a failure to believe in God and the gospel. All those three things are true. We've talked about them this morning. None of them, however, does what? None of them takes into account Jesus, right? I'm not sure if I said his name yet. If you remember, at the center of the city of Babylon was a tower. And as a child, I was always taught that the Babylonians were trying to build this tower in order to get up into the heavens to reach God. And so in my little brain, I used to think, well, the base of the tower would have to be just enormous, and then the second level would have to be a little bit less enormous, and then the third level... And I remember thinking, like, once you got up to about a mile, 
doesn't matter how great your math is, it's going to look a little bit like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Like at some point in time, it's just you can't go up high enough. And that would really fit the pride piece of the story. However, studies in ancient Near Eastern Babylonian literature have shed a little bit of light on this situation. I mentioned at the top of the tower was a shrine painted blue to look like the sky. And the purpose of the tower and of that shrine was to invite God down to earth. And then the hope was that God would enter into the shrine and make his way down the steps of the ziggurat and then take up residence in the temple, which would have stood at the base of the ziggurat. In other words, the hope was that God would come down to them. Seems like a good hope. But to add insult to injury in this case, they weren't inviting God down to glorify his name, but rather they were inviting him down to make a name for themselves, right? In other words, they wanted to use God for what he would give them. Wow. All of a sudden, these words sound really, really familiar, right? Like all of a sudden, we are talking our own language here, right? You know, God, I'll pray to you, but bless my family. God, I'll go to church, but make sure work is good. God, I'll pray to you, but make sure that nobody that I love gets sick, right? We uh, begin using God for what he can give us instead of loving him for himself. It's exactly how we relate to God. We build our lives, our cities. We may even have the church at the center, hoping to coax God down in order that he might bless us, right? If I get it just right, if I sing it right, if I have enough quiet times, if I do it right, maybe he'll bless us, right? Maybe then he'll give us what we want. God, however, loves us too much to allow us to relate to him that way, right? No, no good wife is going to let her husband relate to her that way. No good husband wants his wife to relate to him that way. We should love our spouses and we should love God. And God definitely loves us too much to allow us to relate to him that way. And so 2,000 years ago, God did come down. But he didn't enter through a ziggurat or through a shrine or a temple. 2,000 years later, God came to earth, making his dramatic entrance into the earthly realm in a barn, surrounded by sheep and goats, and a teenage boy, and a teenage girl. Our ancestors refused to go, but Jesus obeyed his father and went. He set out. He faced the fear and the terror of the cross because he loved his father and because he loved you and me. He could have stayed put in his kingdom and security and safety, but instead Jesus said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, right? Well, that's the answer to the Tower of Babel is that Jesus was and is who he could never be. And so our safety and our security isn't found in settling down and building a city, but our safety and security is found in our Savior Jesus who loved us enough to lay down his life for us that we might stand safely before our Heavenly Father. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word Thank you for the stories of Scripture. Father, obviously, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. Um, And so, Father, I pray today that our hope would not be in ourselves or our wealth or in our health or in our ability to manage relationships, Father, but I pray that our safety and our security would come from knowing that your son Jesus um, did everything that we couldn't do and did everything that we wouldn't do. And that somehow, miraculously, 
the perfect obedience of your son, Jesus, is our, is our record. And so, Father, we stand before you this morning, not in arrogance, but in humility, claiming the blood of your son, Jesus, his perfect life, death, and resurrection over us. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to stand in strength, uh, in ultimately in the strength of your son, Jesus, over us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.